I wish I could play Mount Trumpet. I would do nothing but ska. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Paul Bernardo and Carla Homanka. And uh, where are we going for this one, Katie? This one is in Canada. Ooh. Canada. Canada, huh? And uh, where did you do your research on this one? The book for this one was Invisible Darkness by Stephen Williams. And then I also watched Carla's interviews on YouTube. So since this is from Canada, it's all fake, right? I wish it was. Oh, okay. Truly and genuinely, don't ever read this book. Yeah, we're covering all of the not as horrible stuff this week. And then next week, I'm trying to fit everything I need to purge out of my brain into one episode so we can just be done with it. So we're going to slow ease them into the gruesome brutality that is this series? Yes. And was this recommended by anybody? Yes, this was recommended by Grace M. All right, well, thank you for the recommendation, Grace. Why don't no. you? Well, <laughs> get a better recommendation next time, Grace. I don't think, I think she had good intentions, but I don't think she quite knew the, the, whole story. the severity of what she was Asking. signing herself up for. I see. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? Carla Homolka was born May 4th, 1970, to Kara and Dorothy Homolka in Ontario, Canada. Carol was a Czechoslovakian immigrant turned traveling salesman, and Dorothy became a stay-at-home mom with Carla's birth. Fourteen months after Carla was born, Dorothy gave birth to their second child, Lori. Two years later, their final child, Tammy Lynn, was born. So they're all pretty close in age. Yeah. Because of Carol's job, the Homolkas were drugged around Ontario from the time Carla was born until not long after the birth of Tammy, when they finally settled down in St. Catharines. The relationship between Carol and Dorothy was strained from the start, as Carol had a pretty serious alcohol problem. Some sources say that Carol would often fly into a rage when drunk and beat Dorothy, and that their eventual move to St. Catharines was his way of isolating her from their family and friends. It's possible that he just didn't like having the name Carol, even though it was spelled differently. I understand. I thought you were talking about the mom until just now. Who did you think Dorothy was? The dad. Okay. It's 2021. It was not. No, this was like 1970. Carla was an extremely intelligent and friendly child. She hit all the major milestones early and did well in school. She was rather domineering, but her personality allowed her a large friend group. As she reached her teenage years, Carla went through the normal phases, becoming more withdrawn and secretive from her parents. Her friend group shrank, but she still maintained close relationships with a small group of friends. When she moved to Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School, she became especially rebellious. Her and her sister would frequently talk shit to Carol, telling him to fuck off and calling him a dumb check. That's kind of funny. That's kind of cold. To your father, I don't think that would be very funny. But I guess if you've watched him beat your mother your whole life, it wouldn't be like... Yeah, that's why I think it's funny. It's like, you know, you stupid wife beater. When the heat became too much for Carol to handle, he found refuge in one of Dorothy's friends. Rather than the feelings being mutual, Carol stalked the woman, showing up at her apartment building and trying to get inside. The woman eventually approached Dorothy and told her what was going on. Rather than Dorothy being upset that her husband was unsuccessfully attempting to have an affair, she told the woman that they should just have a threesome to save her and Carol's marriage. Well, that's just what marriage counseling was in the 70s, right? Fix your marriage, have a threesome. You get lost in the pubic hair. 
While this was going on behind closed doors, Carla was partaking in normal teenage angst. Drugs. She didn't really do drugs, actually. I think she, like, smoked a joint. What's angst? Did cocaine every once in a while. It's like, fuck my parents, I'm going to wear all black and not. General Blink-182 attitude. I was going to say, some 41-ish, just... Yeah. Uh, you sure you went through plenty of teenage angst I <laughs> when never, you hit high school? Yeah, I was never angsty. And broke angsty. free from your homeschooling days. Oh, we're gonna go to that, huh? Somehow it always devolves back to making fun of the homeschool. I kid. feel like public school angst and Christian charter school angst are very different, though. Yeah, I popped my collar and wore um, puka shells. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe for a semester. Am I on trial here? Can There's we- like years of photos with you wearing the same necklace. So There's one fucking <laughs> picture from my sophomore year where I have those stupid shells on. Fuck off. Jake's first real year of high school. No, that was my second year, you asshole. Don't you know how it works? Being that it was the late 70s, early 80s, the world was rapidly approaching the satanic panic. When Carla developed an interest in the occult, it seemed like a much bigger deal than we would consider it today. She basically went through an emo phase, dyeing her blonde hair black, wearing dark, heavy eye makeup, doing fake rituals with incense and candles, and using Ouija boards. Is Canadian occult the same as American occult? Like, the A occult? I don't understand why you guys think Canada is so different. Then, but why think- is the Canadian occult different? Oh, because I don't know if their Ouija board has, like, the same letters and stuff as ours. <laughs> what language do you think they speak? Like, Canadian and French. They speak fouet. It's just like the little mark over the E. It's actually, it's OAJ where they live. Life in Canada is surprisingly similar to... Would you like to play America. a Ouija? That's Italian. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The only difference between America and Canada is that you can walk five feet in America without seeing a moose. No, the only difference is that Canada allows full nude strip clubs and alcohol served in the same location. And healthcare. Mm. Mm. Not as exciting. But what, so, do, what, what, what do Canadian occultists wish for? Like, what are they Ouija in? Maple syrup. Yeah, good maple harvest. Okay, so St. Catharines, this city that they live in, is right on the New York border. Mm. They are like... Very, very close close to Niagara Falls. One thing about her phase that legitimately was concerning and that she never grew out of was her fascination with violent sexual content. Carla began reading books that detailed sexual abuse, such as Michelle Remembers. What's that book about? Yeah, so it's a, a true story about a client that went through recovered memories. She was hypnotized and recovered all of these memories of being violently sexually abused as a child. Hmm. And it's about the therapy sessions that led to her recovering and her memory. She liked these books in a sexual way? Yeah. She or- she read them for the descriptions of the violent sexual content more than interest or... So she really liked the books that this guy wrote. Carla also began expressing violent thoughts to friends, such as, quote, I like to put dots all over someone's body and take a knife and then play connect the dots and then pour vinegar all over them. She also began threatening suicide frequently and obsessing over death. She once inscribed a friend's book, quote, Remember, suicide kicks and fasting is awesome. Bones rule. Death rules. Death kicks. I love death. Kill the fucking world. Just normal goth kid stuff. So edgy. I don't know what kicks means. I think it means it's 
Cool. Yeah, it kicks. It fucking kicks probably, ass. Probably rocks. Kicks ass, bro. I might, that must be a Canada thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't say there are no, after There it. are no differences between America and Canada. Imagine you're fucking 30 miles from New York and you think you can just say kicks. Oh boy, that kicks, eh? Like most teenagers, Carla quickly grew out of her emo phase and moved on to being a preppy blonde, like Elle Woods without the ambition. She and her closest friends started a clique that they called the Exclusive Diamond Club. Their goal was to find a rich, slightly older man, get a huge diamond ring, get married, and live off of his money. Kind of a ridiculous club, and in America, they're the gold digger party, not the exclusive diamond club, all right? That's another difference between America and Canada. So they were literally just trying to nab themselves a Howard J. Marshall. Yes, they were going to Anna Nicole it. She tried many hobbies, but eventually joined theater and became a rather good actress. This would come in handy later in her life. She had to pretend to have a personality. Carla began dating a boy and quickly fell in love, but their relationship came to a halt when he moved to Kansas. Despite her parents telling her no, Carla purchased a plane ticket with her money from her part-time job and flew out to see him. There, she tried cocaine and lost her virginity. Usually happens when you try cocaine. According to the boyfriend, they had normal, vanilla sex, but according to Carla... They took part in orgies and extreme bondage. Who do we believe on this detail? The of boyfriend. The yeah. because No one see, loses their virginity in an orgy, right? See, the boyfriend was telling the truth because he could have, like, upped his prowess or whatever or his image by saying, you know, yeah, we orgied. <laughs> but instead, he just told the truth. And I'm said, sure everyone would have believed him if he just said it like that, too. Oh, so if I walked up to you and be like, yeah, I orgied yesterday, you wouldn't believe me? No. Yeah, I'm would. sorry, no. Yeah, I would not. I, would, I wouldn't do that anyway. <laughs> but she was very much like everything had to be extreme and she had to look cooler than she was and she was a very good liar. So she couldn't just say she lost her virginity like a normal teenage girl when they do that. It had to be. She orgied hard. And she was like tied up and spanked and yeah, all of the extreme BDSM stuff that you don't really know about when you're a teenager. In October of 1987, Carla was invited by her boss to Scarborough, where a convention was being held in a hotel. After spending the day at the convention, Carla and her friend Debbie headed downstairs to the hotel restaurant. They ended up bringing back two men, who their boss kicked out, then immediately went back down and found two more men. Guess that's one way to stick it to your boss. And they were teenagers at this time. Carla was 17. Ah, gross. The man Carla brought back was named Paul Bernardo. The two had sex all night, and Carla would later say, quote, The first time I met him, I knew I'd marry him. He puts women under his spell, you know. I fell in love that night. Why didn't her boss kick the second set of dudes out? They would have just gone back down and found two more. I think these ones are less drunk and less obnoxious. Mm. But she just gave up. Okay. Paul Bernardo was born August 27, 1964, in Scarborough, Ontario. Although his parents are listed as Marilyn and Kenneth Bernardo, Paul's real father was actually a man named Bill, whom Marilyn had an affair with. Paul was born with a large, transient blood clot on the side of his face, apparently leaving Marilyn aghast with how ugly her third child had been born. It dissipated six weeks after Paul was born, but some speculate that it had already done its damage. Being that it was a blood clot, it had to have traveled from somewhere, making it possible it traveled through his brain. 
Was there any physical scarring or disfiguration to his face after the clot disappeared? No. It was just blood. So they just automatically decide, this guy's probably got a few screws loose now that he had a blood clot in his face. That doesn't seem like a fair assumption. Blood clots will kill you. That's how you have strokes. Yeah, but if you survive, who's to say that you got a little brain damage or don't have a little brain damage? I mean, it's possible, but it's not confirmed, but it had to have formed and traveled slander somewhere. I think we can slander this person as much as we want because he's a horrible human being. Okay, fair enough. As a baby, Marilyn noted that Paul was not affectionate and was quote-unquote very selfish and stubborn. Paul developed normally until he was two years old when the family noticed that it was odd that Paul hadn't begun speaking yet. When they took him to the doctor, they discovered that he was tongue-tied, meaning he had a small piece of skin connecting his tongue to his palate, something that's usually noticed when infants have a difficult time nursing. Once this was fixed, Paul became extremely talkative, so much so that it even began affecting his grades. Did they at that point consider reattaching the tongue to the palate? No, but I don't know how they didn't notice this until he was two. Like, that's a long time for your kid to not make any sort of comprehensible noise. As he grew older and entered high school, Paul developed the ability to sweet-talk women and went on to have many, many relationships. Now, was Paul a good-looking dude? Most people would consider him attractive. He was tall and blonde and skinny and had blue eyes, but... But... Personally, I would say no. He looks like he could be a member of NSYNC. A real Nick Lachey we have here. And he wasn't naturally, like, bleach blonde. I'm pretty sure he dyed his hair. So him and Carlo were known as the Ken and Barbie killers because he was so conventionally attractive, I guess. He looks creepy to me. When Paul was 16, his life changed dramatically. For no known reason, Marilyn stormed into his room unannounced and tossed a picture of a man on Paul's bed. She told him that it was his real father and called him a bastard before storming right back out. Most likely, the hostility arose from a fight with Kenneth Bernardo, who was an extremely unpleasant man. He and Marilyn never got along, as their marriage had basically been set up by Marilyn's father. Did they try a threesome? No. Because I heard that that fixes marriages. <laughs> I know, they should have gotten re- relationship advice from Dorothy on that one. Kenneth would constantly berate and talk down to Marilyn, saying things like, quote, Boom, 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 look out, here comes the big fat cow, when she walked down the stairs. Was Marilyn a large woman? Not when they first got married, but she started having problems with her thyroid, and so she gained weight from that. You still shouldn't talk to your wife like this, or anyone in general. Marilyn eventually withdrew from family life, moving into the basement and doing nothing but staying in bed all day. She stopped taking care of the children completely, and Kenneth did nothing to pick up the slack, as he thought it was a woman's job to keep the house. This meant that the children didn't have their meals cooked, food wasn't even purchased, and no one cleaned up after themselves, so they lived in squalor. Despite his hatred for his wife, Kenneth would sometimes sneak down to the basement to have sex with Marilyn. I take it Marilyn didn't have much say in this matter? I doubt it. On top of being a terrible human being and father, Kenneth was also a pervert. He would frequently sneak out of the house at night and stare into their neighbor's daughter's window. One night, the woman was sitting outside her home and watched Kenneth sneak out of his house and over to her window and peep inside. She called police, who came and asked Kenneth exactly what he was doing. He made up a story about hearing a noise and needing to go check it out. 
Police weren't able to do much besides write a report and hopefully scare Kenneth straight. They knew, though, right? Like, he's probably sitting there stuttering, stammering, coming up with some stupid fucking story. Yeah, and it was 3 a.m. When she watched him, she said that he went, he was on a mission. Like, he'd done this many, many times before. He has his own little route and theme song on his way down. He didn't even have a route. He literally walked straight out of his front door across the street, just, like, assuming that no one would ever see him and care. Unfortunately, his disgustingness went much farther than being a peeping Tom. Paul's younger sister, Debbie, had been molested from a very early age, so young she cannot remember when it started. When she was 10 years old and Kenneth and Marilyn's relationship really started to deteriorate, it got much worse. Kenneth would sneak into her room at night and tell her to not tell Marilyn. In an attempt to stop it, Debbie stacked loud, heavy items in front of her door so when he snuck in, it would make a racket and wake everyone up. She also had to begin closing her curtains tight as Kenneth would climb up to the roof and try to watch her undress at night. On Sundays, the family would congregate together and watch the Disney movie playing on TV that week. While the two boys sat with their mother, Kenneth would make Debbie sit with him and molest her. Right there in family time? Yeah. What the fuck? Sometimes when he was too rough, Debbie would say ouch, getting Marilyn's attention. She would ask what was going on, but she very well knew exactly what Kenneth was doing. She just didn't care. Fuck that bitch. Yeah. Fuck Kenneth. Fuck all of them. A bunch of garbage-ass human beings. Despite his desolate home life, Paul was able to present himself as a smart, attractive, well-dressed, and well-put-together man at school. His only downfall seemed to be his closest friends, the Smyrna's brothers, Steve, Alex, and Van. They would remain close friends throughout Paul's life and eventually become business partners. In 1982, Paul finished high school and his parents finally divorced. Paul also began dating his first long-term girlfriend at this point, Jennifer. Although Paul had some odd characteristics, one of them being that he became sexually aggressive between 11 and midnight and 2 a.m. every single night, she thought he was charming. He was, like, violent aggressive or... No, he would, like, call her and be like, hey, you need to come meet me somewhere so I can punish you for not being a virgin when we started dating. And then he would, like, spank her. She was all into it or? She, no, she just agreed because she really liked him. It was, like, BDSM pain. It wasn't like he was intentionally, like, choking her out, trying to kill her. Ah, okay. It's just weird that it was a very specific time frame. It was with Jennifer that Paul first began exploring his violent, sadistic fantasies. She discovered he liked it when she cried out in pain and preferred anal sex over vaginal intercourse. He also enjoyed putting wine bottles into her. How does something like that develop seemingly out of nowhere? Is it just more circumstantial or is it like this person had a pre-proclivity to that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, people that are into that stuff, it's something very specific that you kind of have to figure out that you're into, but it's you're either into it or you're not. I think it's kind of an innate thing. Ah. It's not like you someday just decide that you want to have... get the wine bottle. Yeah, exactly. So I think it, it started out as just regular BDSM stuff, and then it started progressing into what we're going to talk about next week. But I don't think there would be any way to change this and, like give him therapy until he wasn't into it anymore. I see. Little did Jennifer know, she was not Paul's only serious relationship. She found out about Lenore and Lenore about her when she was over at Paul's house one day. As they sat together in the living room, someone suddenly began pounding on the front door so hard they broke the glass window pane. 
Paul, panicked, told Jennifer to hide while he dealt with it. Paul and Lenore's relationship was similar to his and Jennifer's. He was sexually violent, especially at his specified times during the night. He was also physically abusive, a trait he likely learned from watching his father. One night at 2 a.m., Paul called Lenore and told her he wanted to punish her for not being a virgin. When they met up, he spanked her and made her apologize for having sex with anyone but him. Virginity was something of an obsession for Paul. He fantasized about taking women's virginities and would punish the women he dated if they were not virgins when they met. After Jennifer and Lenore found out about each other, they both broke it off with Paul. Luckily for him, he met Carla right before they broke up with him, but not before he severely beat Jennifer and attempted to stab her, most likely to death. But she survived his attack? Yeah, she was able to get out of the car and ran for her life. I mean, did he actually stab her a couple times or no he dropped the knife between the car seats and she was able to get away as he was trying to grab it what a fucking dumbass he actually never stabbed anyone that we know of obviously he couldn't hold on to the knife just threatened quite a bit yeah that's that was like his mo he liked to have a knife with him but i don't think he ever used it the weekend after paul and carla met she invited him to her home for a party they quickly ditched the party and went to Carla's basement, where she pulled out a pair of handcuffs. She asked Paul to handcuff her and pull her skirt up. I feel like it's necessary here to point out that rape play and consensual non-consent are very normal kinks for people and have a rather large community in the BDSM scene. There is absolutely nothing wrong with either when they are done correctly between two consenting adults who understand each other's boundaries and communicate well. There is nothing inherently wrong or shameful about having fantasies or participating in sex acts that resemble rape and we're not here to kink shame. If Carla and Paul had only participated in these acts together, or with other, keywords here, consenting adults, they would have been like many other couples around the world. Unfortunately, when Paul asked Carla what she would think if he was a rapist and she said it would be cool, they weren't talking about fantasies. So was he admitting that he was already a rapist or that he was wanting to be a rapist? That he was wanting to be a rapist. I don't think at this point he had raped anybody, but he was highly considering, I guess, starting a career. Yeah, like who the fuck aspires to be a, a rapist? That's like... So did her, like, basically encouragement towards this kind of push him over the edge and allow him the ability to do this? Like I it think, built his courage or something. I think it allowed him to do it a lot sooner than he would have done it without her encouraging him. But I think he would have, at some point in his life, become a rapist. Okay. If not, maybe not as many victims as he eventually has, but he would have become a rapist. He was just far too into that fantasy that he could just pass it up and not actually... And I don't think CNC and like rape play stuff would have been enough for him because he's still, he needs that element of actually not having someone consent I and see. not the fake. Because CNC play is when basically you say no and you act like you're not consenting to the act, but it's discussed heavily beforehand that there is consent. And yeah, you'll say pineapple if you're tired of it. Yeah. After their second weekend together, Paul began driving to St. Catharines every Wednesday and over the weekends. Wednesday was so they could go to, like, uh, Bible study together Wednesday night? Absolutely, yeah. When they were not together, Carla would write him love notes obsessively, constantly expressing her undying love for him. Because Carla had said it would be cool if Paul was a rapist, he decided to go forward with his fantasies. 
On May 4, 1987, Paul followed a woman home and attacked her in front of her parents' house. This was the first known rape he committed. Ten days later, on May 14, he raped another woman in the backyard of her parents' home. He took a break in June, then attempted to rape another woman on July 17. She fought back, leading Paul to beat her severely, but he gave up before he raped her. On September 29th, Paul broke into the bedroom of a 15-year-old girl and attempted to rape her. He fled the scene when her mother entered the bedroom and screamed. Another man was originally convicted of the crime. All those women were attacked in their parents' homes or yards. Were they all underage or just the, I don't want to say just the last one. Were they all underage? They weren't all underage, but they were all in a, like, 25 to 14 was his preferred age range. He Ah. preferred younger, but if there was a victim, he would take it. So he never got caught for being a serial rapist? No, he did. He eventually does, and he was... Spoiler alert. ...convicted of the crime that the other man was the attempted rape of the 15-year-old that someone else was convicted of, but it takes a very long time. On December 16th, Paul attacked a woman after she got off of a bus. In a similar fashion to the other rapes he'd already committed, he came up behind her and put his hand over her mouth, showing her his knife. He pulled her between two houses, only a few homes down from where she lived. The actual sexual assault lasted over an hour, during which Paul made the woman answer questions and repeat phrases to him. Because Paul had an extremely similar M.O. for each rape and attempted rape he'd already committed, Detective Constable Steve Irwin, no relation, and Inspector Joe Wolf began looking into the serial rapist prowling Scarborough. Each woman had given a very similar description, well-groomed, young, good teeth, and didn't smell bad. Erwin and Wolf had also been looking into a murder that occurred recently and began to believe that the rapist may be their perp. Before they could do much of anything with the investigation, another woman was attacked. This time, it was a 17-year-old girl. She had gotten off the bus around 1 a.m. and was attacked almost immediately. At this point, Paul had figured out his go-to method. This rape took place almost identically to the December 16th rape. While she was assaulted, her attacker made her repeat certain phrases over and over and answer his questions. Do we know what the phrases were that he was so, like, obsessed with? He would make them say things like, I'm a cunt, and Merry Christmas a lot during the December rapes, I love you, and he would make them talk to his penis. There was, okay, so this book was, like, scarily descriptive of every single assault and murder that these two committed so where did they get all this was this first-hand information i think he had access to all the police reports he was definitely there for the trials and then next week we're going to talk about the really horrible stuff that was videotaped and i can say confidently that he watched every single one of them and then described them second by second i'm not gonna like directly quote what he said during these attacks because it's terrible. Luckily for Erwin and Wolf, the 17-year-old got a good look at the rapist's face and was able to describe him perfectly. He was white, 6 foot, 180 pounds, blondish hair, clean-shaven with a small mole under his nose, smelled good, no tattoos, and he was circumcised. He was wearing two rings, one probably a school ring from his college, and drove a white capri. He looks like he's from a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, he kind of looks like old... Like, 1800s portraits. <laughs> he looks like, like Zac Efron from the 1800s. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, look at that. 
but he's very like clean shaven and i don't i don't see the how he looks anything like ken oh yeah no but maybe like carla was pretty i can kind of see that because she was blonde and an idiot and kind of that ditzy but i don't know about him the victim was able to create a composite that was a perfect match to paul Erwin and Wolf, who were now heading the investigation, decided not to release the drawing to the public. Because releasing composites generally leads to excessive amounts of reports from anyone and everyone that knows somebody that might look like the drawing, they thought it would be better to keep it to themselves for now. At this point, they really weren't even sure that the other rapes and attempted rapes that occurred before December were connected. All they knew was that the rapes on December 16th and 23rd were committed by the same person, who they gave the moniker the Scarborough Rapist. They knew that he would mess up soon enough, and they would catch him without the help of the public. They were very, very wrong. This guy sounds kind of awful. Kind of? Even the composite, he literally looks like uh, a frat boy rapist. I just, yeah. I can't get past, like, th- this obsession that everyone has with his looks when he just literally looks like he eats green eggs and ham. I don't get it. He's a weird-looking dude. He's just, I think, not the type that most people would consider to be a rapist murderer. He doesn't, like... No. I mean, in the 80s, I don't, I don't think people really understood that, like, I guess serial killers could be, like, normal, attractive people. You can see the composite, and I'll post it on Facebook, but pretty he, much spot on. 1900s Brock Turner. Is that going to do it for us this week, Katie? Yes, that is all for this week. All right, guys. Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, our Facebook discussion group, Four Corners Crimecast discussion group, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscast. And don't, forget, and don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can get a full episode list. Or you can send us an idea for an episode you want to hear. Or you can get your free Four Corners Crimecast sticker by typing in the code BINGOBANGO at checkout. And we will ship it out to you 100% for free. So stay tuned. Part 2 is coming up next week. And don't forget, if you're in Canada... Just because it seems like you're in the safety of the maple leaves, there's rapists. There's rapists everywhere. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Hey. He tells me, he's like, oh, she has a, a cut, a big old cut on her hand. Uh, you had a Band-Aid? <laughs> <laughs>